Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan. For this episode, I've come to Pembroke College to meet Professor Christopher Young from Cambridge University's Modern and Medieval Languages Faculty, which is part of the School of Arts and Humanities. Chris is an expert on the literature, history and culture of Germany, and he has a particular interest in sport. So perhaps he can tell us why the Germans always win on penalties. Uh, First though, Chris, I just want to ask you about balancing your life as an academic in Cambridge University, because you do a lot of admin work, you do a lot of management, you do a lot of teaching. How do you find time to fit in studying or researching? You just have to be disciplined, I think. And maybe having spent such a long time in Germany, uh, that's helped. I, I had a professor when I was a graduate student in Marburg, in Hessen, and uh, he lived uh, about two hours away from the university, so he would arrive on a Monday evening and leave on a Wednesday evening and pack in all his teaching and admin in a frantic 48 hours, set to a very uh, established rhythm and pattern. Everyone knew when he had arrived. Word would go through the building. It was almost like Elvis is in the building, Heinzler's in the building, and it would start, and it was very intense when he was there. And then beyond that, he was at home doing his research. So that's not something I emulated immediately, but I often thought in later years that that was something that had obviously made an impression on me. So you just have to block time out. It's easy for us to characterise the Germans, isn't it, as disciplined, as yeah. you said, and efficient. Yeah. Is, is there some truth in that? Well, the counter to that is that often when we're dealing with, with German universities and German academic associations, I have to say to colleagues who don't know about uh, these and haven't, haven't worked with them before, that actually what they do in Germany is they take all the inefficient people and put them in universities. <laughs> because actually, German universities aren't terribly efficient on the whole, and dealing with German colleagues is not, not the most efficient way of doing this. They're always late, for instance, with, with uh, deadlines and things slip. So that's always quite amusing. It's quite reassuring, yeah, actually. Exactly. Isn't it? <laughs> so what was it about the German language and Germany that made a young boy in Belfast so fascinated? Well, I just had a fabulous teacher. So my PhD supervisor, my undergraduate supervisor at Pembroke College, where we are at the moment, um, was buried two weeks ago, and I gave the eulogy at his funeral. And I opened that eulogy by saying I only ever had two teachers, Ted Cook in Belfast and Peter Johnson in Cambridge. So my my love of German really came from the age of 14 with an excellent school teacher in Belfast. Because it's not the most popular modern language i mean hell modern languages aren't very popular are they at school perhaps you might want to talk about that but there must have been something about german culture you know what can you analyze a bit what it was that attracted you to the country so <laughs> this is not very academic i'll give you the academic answer and the non-academic answer. they both come together so um, i had been doing latin from about the age of eight and I was very well drilled in that. So that when German came, I think uh, around the age of 13, 14 we started, um, it was easier than Latin, um, but all the structures of grammar were there. So it, it, was, it was really pretty straightforward. So that, that was quite thrilling, actually, to see you can pick up a so-called living language as opposed to a so-called dead one that quickly. Um, and at the same time, Germany was popular. German, Germany was winning the football. There was a show that was starting on, on British television at ITV called Avidazen Pet, 
which was, was just a massive hit. Um, and a number of things came together. And by the time I got to the sixth form, Boris Becker, who I've discovered is a week older than me, just won Wimbledon. So there were a number of things coming together. Plus, obviously, modern music as well, Kraftwerk, Nina, that sort of thing. So there was a German moment, I think, in the, in the early 80s that came along with this rapid learning of, of, of the language. Because I'm a bit older than you, so for me, Germany initially as a child was about those comic strips and, you know, Achtung, English pig dog, for you, Tommy, the war is over, and that kind of Germany... I guess you're younger than that, so Germany was a more modern thing. But equally, this was before the wall came down, so you still had that interesting east-west tension. Yeah. I mean, I think I was never rebellious, but my grandfather could never... And I would, certainly wouldn't have wanted to rebel against my grandfather. He was a lovely, gentle man. Um, but he could never get his head around the fact I was learning German or going to Germany. But Germany in the 80s, I think, was a very interesting place... It felt, coming from Belfast when I went there, it felt a very safe place, although I do remember uh, police posters of Bader-Meinhof terrorists <laughs> uh, on, on, on the walls and things, but it, it, it was a very prosperous place to be. So Germany, when I first visited in about 85, felt like a very, very good version of, of the West. It was the best that you could, you could go to. And then I spent my gap year in Berlin after that, after between uh, A-levels and university, and just loved going back and forward across across the Berlin Wall. Well, these were the days when you could pop through Checkpoint Charlie, and if you had some West marks, you could live like a king on the other side. Yes, and you did feel like you were in a John le Carré novel, <laughs> aged 18. So. Um, so Germany had it all for me, really. It had that sort of Cold War thrill in a very safe environment in Berlin, and it had in, in the West, so I first went to Bonn in 85, a week after Boris Becker won his first Wimbledon. And it felt incredibly prosperous and friendly and uh, technologically advanced. And just really exciting, actually. What effect now, looking back on it, 20-odd years, 25 years, what effect did the wall coming down actually have on the German psyche? Do you think they are a unified nation in reality? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? That's why I asked it, Chris. <laughs> um, well, yes and no. I think in, in terms of the, the, the grand arc of history, this is an end point. And, um, so 89-90 is an end point. It's the point where Germany really becomes a complete nation again. It's, it's not split. The, the split that you have in Germany post-war between East and West is now over. Germany is fully part of the West and um, the Allied forces have gone. I remember standing at a bus stop on, on my gap here in Berlin and the, and the US Army out doing their morning jog and things like that. So, so Germany at that point has become a full partner um, in all senses of, of, of the West. Has Germany become completely unified? Well, we, we're seeing today Germany is, is undergoing some political issues, and we'll see what happens at the next election. Please don't ask me to predict what's going to happen. <laughs> and having lived in Berlin for two years, over the last five years, what's, what's interesting is that, um, in my view, it, the integration is not complete. So particularly in a city like Berlin, where, where you get east and west, you get the new people moving in from, from the rest of West Germany, quite a sort of bourgeois... Not elite, but but um, moneyed middle class, cultural elite, should we say, living side by side with former East Germans, 
many of whom lost their jobs and many of whom just didn't didn't quite make it. So in in in, um, in East Berlin or the East Berliners and and the East Germans, if those up to about the age of twenty five when the war came down were fine because they moved on, and those over about fifty five didn't have long to go to a pension. But there's a lost generation in between. Who, who just quietly get on with things but, but are not as wealthy and prosperous as, as the rest and also feel, I think, slightly disenfranchised culturally. Having grown up as they did in East Germany, which you could characterise as a far-left society, communist society, are they, perhaps counterintuitively, the people who are attracted to Alternative for Deutschland, to the, to the right-wing political party? Well, you do get you do get a bit of that. I mean, we had with with, with the burning of of immigrant hostels in in northern Germany, a good number of years before this current sort of wave of um, anti-immigration, we did see that. But I think more generally, what people feel they've lost is a sense of community and a sense of social care. So, um, childcare in East Germany was exemplary. Places at kindergarten. Um, we have people who live in the in West Germany, former East Germans, are thinking of moving back when they have children, which is quite extraordinary, really, uh, because some of those old structures remain. But there is a feeling that um, the Western state doesn't always provide as much as the Eastern one did, and that's not just uh, nostalgia, which is uh, which is prevalent as well. So we'll go on and talk about sport, one of your other great interests. But I want to just dig back into history. We've talked about the 20th century and the 21st, but you spend a lot of time with ancient medieval texts. What's the appeal of something that old? And I mean, you were saying German's easy to read. Not in, not in medieval script, it isn't. Well, uh, medieval language isn't that easy. Uh, medieval script is easier sometimes in the 19th century hand because you've got a nice Gothic script manuscript um, where the scribe has taken a lot of trouble, or sometimes not that much trouble, it's fairly clear. If you take um, if you take a 19th century, early 20th century handwriting, and where it just looks like uh, it just looks like a straight line with a, like a, like like one of those monitors for your yeah. heart, um, that can be incredibly difficult. Um, on terms of the language, the, the sort of language I deal with, I often explain by saying it's it's like Chaucer but harder. So um, possibly not. Nowadays, I'm not quite sure what's happening in the school curriculum, but certainly when I was at school, A-level English would definitely have a bit of Shakespeare and it would always do some Chaucer. And with a f- bit of a glossary, you could give that to a class of sixth formers. You couldn't give a class of sixth formers in Germany a piece of Middle High German, as we call it. It's about a century and a half earlier, the main, the main piece of literature that we look at. And do you love it for itself, Chris? Is it something where, you know, you open the text and you, th- you think... I'm I'm just enjoying the beauty of this language and the the beauty of this thought. Well, absolutely. I was first attracted to it. Uh, I love German, and even at school we started um, with a teacher who was very dedicated and asked us what we wanted to do for a bit of extra. Those of us who were very keen on it, and we started with a bit of Goethe, and that was fine. A bit more difficult, more words to look up. And then we wanted to do something medieval, so we started doing medieval in a, in a sort of parallel translation with a parallel modern t- German text. And I was just fascinated by the language. I could see that it didn't quite work. To my eyes at that point, I could see that some, some of the cases looked wrong and some of the endings looked wrong. 
Um, and the, 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 the best bit is getting beyond that to say that it's not a random language. It's not because they were medieval and they couldn't speak their own language. Um, this is the first thing we tell students when they learn medieval language. Um, but there was a regularity about it. And language, languages changed, but it was a regular language. Um, which is fascinating. It has its own it has its own sort of beauty about it. Do you love the business of finding out what it means? The sort of textual examination, the detective story of it, or do you love the sound of the language? Well, we don't exactly know what it sounded like. Uh-huh. There are debates about that. We have a rough idea. Is when did a W be, become V in like a German? When, when was it still pronounced like in English? Um, but on the whole, yes, we have, we have a rough idea. But I mean, what, um, what I'm currently working on is, is a large medieval chronicle. So there are 50 manuscripts of this, and we're trying to work out really what sequence they appeared in and what the connections are. And that's fascinating. Because and what is we in this context? So I have a colleague, uh, Dr. Mark Kinkin. Who, who taught me, actually. He's not that much older than me. But uh, uh, then we became colleagues, and we have a, a large project from the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which they sponsored to the tune of a million pounds, which is fantastic. It made the newspapers in Germany that the, the uh, British uh, Research Council given a million for, for a German text, which they doubted a German uh, agency would have given. But part of what we're doing is working out the life, or the, what we call the transmission of the text, and that's that's detective work, really. You're looking at you're looking at very small changes in in the meter or small changes in the semantics of a line, and trying to work out which which manuscript might have been copied from another, or what might have been what might have lain behind a, a manuscript. And that tells you a lot about the way a medieval scribe was writing, and it also tells you sometimes about the amount of change a, a text might have undergone. Early on, you don't have you don't have every man, every example of the manuscript or the text as it was trans, transmitted, but you can begin piecing it together. So, my wife sometimes wonders what I'm doing, um, but you, you, I'll, I'll be working in my study and come out, and we've been skyping, and we've just discovered that there might well have been a manuscript in such and such a region, fifty years earlier than the one that we actually have, and that's quite exciting. Really, it's it's real detective work. This is Cambridge Minds on Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Trevor Dan talking to Professor Chris Young. Now, you've talked about sport. You mentioned Boris Becker. You've published a paper on what happened at the Munich Olympics, 1972, not the Olympics' finest hour. Um, briefly, what was the impact of that? Well, the impact was, was huge, um, but also a bit divided. So those Olympics, and what really interested me about them was not so much the terrorist attack, because that had been written about quite a bit, but everything that the Germans had put into it. And how do you organise an Olympic Games to represent a nation not very long after the war, and particularly when the last Games in Germany had been the 1936 Olympics, which were really a taboo subject in most um, circles in Germany. So I was interested in how the Germans went about rethinking that as a very public stage and it had involved a whole range of elites in Germany from from artists to architects to to city designers and urban planners etc and also right in the middle of this a hand grenade was thrown into because the Olympic Games is meant to be for the youth of the world 
the German organisers were, were really counting on, on, on a young image of Germany. You get the 1968 student movement right in the middle of it. So that was, that was problematic. When the, when the games happened, a lot of cynics were immediately won over. So they went for a, um, a very light image of Germany, lots of bright colours, and a lot of people thought it wouldn't work. This isn't, this isn't Germany, we're too serious for that. But the whole concept was so intricately constructed and executed so well, it, was, it went down immediately very well. So the Germans were incredibly proud about their games. It's the first thing. Second thing which struck me as, as odd, when you think of Germany today, you wouldn't necessarily get to this position, is that they were very international. So a lot of the people that I interviewed were just thrilled that the world had come to Germany. This was a great international moment for Germany. And one of the Olympic hostesses married the, the then Prince of Sweden, who then is now uh, the King of Sweden. She's the Queen of Sweden. So that was the second thing. And then in the middle of this is the terrorist attack. And it gets complicated at that point. There's a range of, there's a range of responses to that. Of course, it was, it was terrible. But I think what I worked out was that the Germans didn't quite know what to do with this. They had a split reaction, really. It's, oh dear, it's us again, and it's Jews. And they felt terrible about that. But equally, they felt that it, this was a situation and an event not of their own making. And they resented it as well. So you get this strange dynamic between feeling terrible about the fact that this had happened, particularly to, to Jewish athletes, but then also resenting the fact that they were really being made to feel guilty or even within themselves feeling guilty. So a lot of that then being externalised and pushed towards the, the Jews and the Arabs. So it was quite a strange mixed response. On a more prosaic level, Chris, why are the Germans so good at football particularly? Well, let me rephrase that. Why do they keep beating England? <laughs> well, I think, there, <laughs> I think um, there are a number of reasons for this. The first one really is, is that they train better. I, I haven't got the figure off the top of my head, but I think, it's, I think they have around three times the number of UEFA qualified coaches. So right, right there, the nation, roughly the same size, a bit bigger, but not that much bigger. They have at least three, perhaps even up to four times the amount of high-level coaching power. Now, I saw this when my son was there for, for two years playing for a German team aged 12 to 14. The amount of proper training that you get, even at that level, is extraordinary compared to you know a dad turning up in a tracksuit on a Saturday morning to help run the team because no one else will do it. So I think that's, that's the first element of that. And then I think they just know how to organise tournaments. You can't underestimate this. Um, a, a group of players who go to a tournament, we've seen this with the Dutch over the years, very talented teams who ought to have won more tournaments. They get to a tournament and they, you've got to actually, and I, I use this phrase with, with uh, extreme course, you've got to run it like a military campaign uh, to keep a team, to get a team absolutely to the right level at the right time. And I think what you saw in the, in, the, in the last World Cup was there was no revolution in the way the Germans played. They'd had a bit of a revolution since Klinsmann came, which was for a much more direct football. And I saw that even, even at youth level. They were playing much more through the middle on a quick break. It's like it filtered all the way through down the system to the youth level. But at this last World Cup, which they won, they didn't have any new tactic or anything. But what allowed them to win was that they had players who could play in various positions. 
So you'll probably remember Philip Lamb, who was a right-back, was playing at the centre of midfield, but halfway through the tournament moved back to right-back. And you had players who could play in very various positions. You saw this in, in the World Cup final. One key player couldn't play, another came on and was knocked out. <laughs> he played about 15 minutes of a World Cup, brought someone else on and they could move things around. So they're very adaptable players. And if you compare that to the, the example I always give is you compare that to the situation we had in, in Britain, we, we had, or in England, where those great players, uh, Frank Lampard and Steve Gerrard, really also Wayne Rooney, um, who all wanted to play in that advanced midfield position. And we couldn't cope with it. So on a more academic level then, Chris, in terms of sport and German sport, what is it you're studying at the moment? So I have a project which I'm going to start writing up at long last in the summer after a good number of years researching it. And it's on sport and the media in Germany in the 20s and 30s. So I was attracted to that because um, media, generally the, the study of media, had been a popular topic within mainstream historiography. But surprisingly for sports history, no one had really done it, which is really very strange because media and sport go together. And I also wanted to work on the 20s um, in the first instance. Soon realised you can't work on the 20s without really working on the 30s. There is no hard line between Weimar and, and Nazi Germany. So I've been through all the radio archives. I have in Pembroke College, I've, I've got a digitisation of all the, all the existing sports reports on radio from the 20s and 30s. The films were more difficult to get at. I had to sit through an archive for three summers. I spent this last summer for five weeks watching every Nazi newsreel that exists. Whoa. So I must be one of the few people around who's done that. Um, wasn't the, wasn't the best uh, summer, <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, but actually quite interesting. Um, so all of this material is coming together, and I have to make sense of it. And have you been able to draw any comparisons between the way that the British press and media reported on those same events in sport? I haven't done that quick comparison, but I will do mm -hmm. in the coming months. But what struck me already... Uh, particularly in Nazi Germany, is, is that the coverage is not what you would expect it to be. So um, the coverage is much more interested on the basic sporting facts and in, in reporting with the stars. So what, what was really interesting for me, um, and again I'm going to have to go away and think about this and see how much I make of it, but there is a famous incident in 38, as far as I remember it was 38, where England played in Berlin, and they were told shortly before they went out that they had to do the Hitler salute, which they did, and there was a dispute in the changing room and the FA was involved. Now, while I looked at the um, coverage of this in the German newsreels, Fox was, was producing in Europe and producing in Germany. The Fox newsreel had the England Hitler salute, but the German-produced newsreel in Nazi Germany did not have the England team doing the Nazi salute, which is... Which is very strange indeed, but it didn't, it was a nice example for me, but it didn't entirely surprise me because the coverage of sport is a lot less political than one would imagine. And that's going to be something I'm going to push. Let's just go back to where we started, which was talking about studying German and in fact studying all languages. 
we don't do enough of it in England, I suspect, because everywhere we go in the world, people want to speak English, so we don't have to learn their language. Do you think we should work harder at teaching the next generation to learn foreign languages? I mean, particularly at a time when we're leaving the EU, it's a hard sell, I guess. Obviously, I would say yes to that. I mean, my view on this is that, is that as the world becomes more globally connected, the need to learn another language, at least another language, is, is absolutely vital. We have, uh, in, in the Faculty of Modern Medieval Languages, a, a, a major a research project sponsored by the AHRC. I think they got four million. It's, a, it's the biggest grant we've ever had in, in our faculty, looking at bilingualism. And the colleagues there just, just already are pointing out that, I'm not quite sure what the percentage is, but a very high percentage of the world grows up bilingual, speaking at least two languages. So it's, and, and often more than that, so it's actually more usual in the world to, to speak or to be in contact with more than one language. We're actually an outlier in that, in that sense. I think not to learn another language deprives you of the opportunity of learning another culture properly. And that may sound very highfalutin, but it is a great thrill to be able to function in another country and to understand another mindset and another culture deeply. And also to put yourself in that position. I, mean, I, I will behave very slightly differently. I will speak more directly in a meeting in German. Um, it's just really great to, to get inside um, another nation and another people. And that's, I think, you lose out in life if you, if you don't have that opportunity. And it's very important for, particularly for our young people and particularly for our country going forward. This has been Cambridge Minds, a TDC production for Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm Trevor Dan. We've been talking to Professor Christopher Young. I'm going to depart from format here, Chris, because you said earlier that you enjoyed German music and you mentioned Kraftwerk. Are you still listening to Kraftwerk? Not as much as I used to. <laughs> but there is actually, um, uh, given that cultural studies is, has taken over a lot of what we do, writing about pop music is is perfectly fine. So um, you can become a university professor or a reader with a track record on German on, on German pop music. And we, we have a colleague in, in Aston University who's just finishing off a book for our book series. Well, let's play something by Kraftwerk and you introduce it in German. Und jetzt hören wir den größten Hit von, uh, von der Band Kraftwerk Autobahn. Hey.